Some people sleep at night and dream their dreams. Other people stay awake and make them a reality. This is Sufyan Ismail, entrepreneur who left business to help start Muslim institutions and structures to empower and represent Muslims in the West. We never saw this two years ago. So how can anyone say to me the system is rigged, we can't make a difference here? With Gaza still under illegal bombardment, we discuss practical solutions that require institution building, including Islamophobia Awareness Month and the shocking impact that it's having. Alhamdulillah. Let's remind ourselves on who this woman Suella Braverman is. People like me would question her sanity. We also discuss the impact of Rishi Sunak firing Suella Braverman on the Muslim community going forward. Muslims punishing the Labour Party and the hard work that's going on behind the scenes to make an impact in the next general election. All part of this episode of Empowered by Islam 21C, a new weekly podcast where we collaborate with leading voices to discuss Islam solutions to 21st century challenges and trends. So Islamophobia Awareness Month, as I suspect Salman, many of your listeners already know, was set up around 10, 11 years ago, actually, 11 years ago wow, to be precise. Nice. And it wasn't just set up by men, it was set up by a number of organizations, I think like FOSIS, but certainly MCB were involved amongst others. Um, and so Islamophobia Awareness Month in a nutshell, and we can certainly happily go into the detail of some of this, is every November, it runs the whole month, and you have a whole host of public sector organizations, employers, Muslim communities, hospitals, companies, and so on, engaging in two key objectives. The first of the two is getting the positive messaging and contribution of Muslims out there in the public space. In other words, we see a lot of negative press in right-wing media about Muslims connected regrettably with extremism, with not contributing to the UK economy and so on. Uh, instead, what this month is about is to get the positive messaging out of what Muslim doctors have done in the NHS for argument's sake, which we can talk about in more detail in a second. What Muslim businessmen have done in terms of creating jobs, Muslim sportsmen, how we have made UK PLC an even better place to be. That is the first of the two objectives here with Islamophobia Awareness Month to set the record straight on what Muslims bring to this country and how they make Great Britain even greater. The second objective with Islamophobia Awareness Month Salman essentially is getting the true scale of Islamophobia out there. We know on Holocaust Memorial Day we revisit stats on anti-Semitism. We know that when pride and um, a lot of the LGBT type initiatives occur out there, the figures on homophobic hate crime are visited. So November is a time when we can look at Islamophobia Awareness Month. We can have a look at precisely what level of attacks have occurred in the UK, whether there is a heavy bias towards the employment workspace, whether it's on the street, whether it's in the media, social media, in the playground. It gives us a chance to assess every year on a year-on-year -year rolling basis basis how bad things actually are. So it's these two objectives, the positive contributions Muslims make, which we can go into, and at the same time, this scale, the sheer scale of Islamophobia, society-wide. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned both um, focuses because um, the criticism many people get sometimes is when they talk about Islamophobia, um, in the context of showing how nice Muslims are and stuff, um, that might kind of detract away from the structural nature of Islamophobia and other types of racism, um, as though somehow Muslims have to prove their kind of humanness and uh, maybe even um, uh, kind of uh, rubber stamping this good good immigrant or good Muslim, bad Muslim kind of binary. But it, it's important to do the first thing I agree for, the personal 
uh, for people, you know, the, the, the prejudice that and discrimination that I individual members of the public might have against Muslims. That's why the second thing is very important to actually look at some of the structural um, uh, elements of Islamophobia and, you know, the, the scale of the problem. But before we kind of crack on, I was just kind of wondering if you, um, if you had a definition first, I mean, what do you, many people might start off with that. What do you, what do you mean by Islamophobia when, you know, when you talk about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, there's a number of definitions for Islamophobia and, uh, some are, um, very simple definitions. For example, the all party parliamentary group on Islamophobia, uh, has a definition. Uh, and then you have definitions which are from entities and organizations like the center for American progress, uh, which are a lot more involved. So for example, the all party parliamentary group on Islamophobia and I mean I'll give you almost like a textbook definition if you want but then I'll elaborate on it and tell you what it really means if that makes sense so the all-party parliamentary group's definition on Islamophobia itself quite simply goes like this Islamophobia is rooted in racism and it's a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived uh, Muslimness uh, and so essentially what it's saying is just like we hate racism just like we hate uh, hate towards people of a certain color, we should hate hate against people from a certain religious background. And as a result of that, Islamophobia in some ways is no different to racism. The Center of American Progress actually had a more holistic definition where it focused on things like media stereotypes and negativity, discrimination against Muslims in the workplace, ostracism of Muslims when it comes to main civic institutions, bullying uh, as well, and all manner a fear essentially against the Muslim community which is directed towards them because they are Muslim an exclusion of Muslims from civic and social society so in a nutshell what we are saying here is any sort of prejudicial behavior towards the Muslim community because it is Muslim any sort of deprivation of the Muslim community because it is Muslim media negativity attacks bullying uh, all of these are Islamophobia in one way or the other. The troubling thing about Islamophobia, and we can certainly look at some of the astonishing data uh, here, is that it's not just on the street. It's not just in the playground. It's not just on social media. If we look at some of the stats, the Home Office carried out analysis, which shows over the last year, a couple of years, three years, that somewhere between 40 to 50 percent of religiously motivated hate crime in the UK is against the Muslim community. We are only 6.7% of this country's population, yet 40 to 50%, do the math on that, that's like seven, eight times our percentage of the population pro rata is what we are suffering as hate crime. And that ranges from media negativity all the way across to attempted murder. And we're not just talking about physical attacks on the streets. If you look at the analysis by Lancaster University and Cardiff University, you'll see that on every one occasion, when Muslims are referred to in a moderate fashion in uh, print newspapers, and this was over a 10 year period. Mm. So things just like a citizen, taxpayer, doctor, worker, believer, whatever. On when, on every one occasion, Salman, we were referred to in a moderate 
all in a positive, noun or adjective-linked fashion. There were 21 occasions where Muslims were referred to in extremist or negative language. So like terrorist, bomber, suicide bomber, um, doldosser, whatever you want. Now you imagine, right? We know we've got problems in our community, but for every one decent person, there are 21 terrorists. That's just ridiculous. But that's what parts of the media would have you believe. And as a result of that, if on every one occasion I said something positive about you, Salman, on 21 occasions I said negative stuff and extremist stuff, people couldn't help but have a negative yeah. image of who you are. And that's why public perceptions of Muslims can be so negative. Because print media specifically, the Murdoch press and right-wing press, really is completely unbalanced and unfair about how it's politically loaded and at times ideologically loaded in terms of how it targets and attacks the Muslim community for its own purposes. Yeah. But it's not also just print media, like I've said, and the Home Office data. Let's look at what the BBC did. The BBC carried out some fascinating analysis, Salman, where they wrote to a number of employers under a Muslim name, and they wrote to a number of employers under a non-Muslim name. Identical CV, right? Um, uh, identical work experience. And it turned out that the non-Muslim CV got three mm -hmm. times as many interviews as the Muslim CV. So there's clearly some conscious and to a degree unconscious bias going on here within the employment workspace as well. But we can take it further still. On social media, the think tank Demos, which is a large UK think tank, had a look at how many Islamophobic tweets were emanating from the United Kingdom and going globally just in one year. And they calculated that about 143,000 it's a staggering number. Islamophobic tweets were coming just outside of the UK, let alone the rest of the globe. That's 393, nearly 400 every single day. And just, you know, to add one final dimension to how widespread Islamophobia now is and to um, how all-encompassing it's actually become. We ha now have a situation uh, whereby charities like Childline have carried out a whole, and the NSPCC, have carried out a lot of analysis on Muslim children in playgrounds and they found Muslim children are so heavily bullied that they've resorted to self-harm, which is basically cutting yourself with a razor blade uh, because of bullying they have suffered, which could take the form of being called Bin Laden or bomber and stuff along those sorts of lines. So whether it's on the street and physical murders of people like Mohammed Salim or attempted murder of people like Zainab Hussein, whether it's nasty media headlines on a one-to-one -one basis, whether it's discrimination in the workplace, uh, like the BBC showed, uh, whether it's social media and Demos' astonishing analysis on Islamophobic tweets, or whether it's uh, uh, society-wide just mantra generally and an acceptance of being Islamophobic passing the dinner table test, uh, we're finding across the board now, including in the playground, with Muslim kids cutting themselves with blades, this is a serious multi-prong problem and it needs a serious multi-prong solution i mean i remember um back in the day you were saying that because uh, we've been kind of supporters of islamophobia awareness month for many years alhamdulillah and you're know, doing not just islam Tennessee, but khutbahs in the local community and getting people um you know to take islamophobia seriously and one of the problems that we came that you said you came across was actually from 
you know a, a side effect of a good thing which is muslims are empowered and they feel you know uh don't feel like victims necessarily they don't absorb like a victim discourse so even when they are attacked when they are slighted when they are discriminated against they don't complain much which is good for their own mental health and their own kind of iman and stuff but it's bad from the perspective of you know gathering statistics and and uh you know getting uh, getting uh, the authorities to to take this more seriously to recognize the scale of the problem is this still an issue yeah absolutely i think one of the biggest problems with the muslim community and it's driven by apathy uh is that um people feel the police are not going to do anything about islamophobia and then they tend not to report it and that's the wrong way to think about this mm. because data is really important and even if the police don't do a huge amount or aren't able to or a prosecution uh isn't forthcoming the mere fact that you've reported it adds to the statistics and data which can then be cited in the media which can then prove the scale of the problem uh, so we as a community are particularly bad there are other communities say for example the jewish community which is probably better in my kind of personal anecdotal experience from speaking to the jewish community if they are subjected to a hate crime they rightly report it uh, of course the jewish community also benefits from uh, a good degree of funding from the government you know to the tune of 13 14 million pounds a year which helps with reporting campaigns and uh, certainly one of our requests to the government is also to fund other communities to the same degree so we too can replicate the excellent work in the jewish community of informing our community to ensure they do report whatever hate crime um, uh, occurs so don't let the fact that you feel the police may not have the resource and time to investigate this fully stop you from actually reporting it you must report it irrespective because we need that data and then hopefully after that the police will take it seriously too and how can people report something that's happened to them or, or a number of ways if it's an emergency police force uh, in in the first instance nine, nine, if nine. it's a, the 999 number then you got the 112 number if it's not uh, an emergency you can also report to the islamophobia response unit which is the the only community funded um legal unit uh, across the uk whereby pro bono solicitors are present there to assist you with hate crimes big law firms are involved as well or with discrimination in the workplace mm -hmm. so if it's an emergency your, your, your 999 is your number if it's not an emergency yes you will report it to the police but do report it to Islamophobia Response Unit but of course if you're in the workplace and you have a um, uh, part of your HR department which covers off complaints about Islamophobia there's nothing stopping you talking in a workplace setting to your supervisor or finding out where you can actually complain internally things like the police in an emergency of course uh, would be your number number one uh, in an emergency but um, beyond an emergency yes you can complain to the IRU the Islamophobia response unit but your workplace may also have somewhere where you can go to mm. what's the uh, I noticed that you have themes every year in Islamophobia awareness month what's the theme this year Oh, absolutely. So uh, the theme is Muslim stories, and I think this might be a good time to cover off two things, because part of the theme is the positive message as far as Muslims in the workplace are concerned, uh, and uh, to kind of almost give a clear idea of how much positivity Muslims are responsible for in this country. Uh, but just uh, on Muslim stories itself, the hashtag, what's that about? It's real encouragement to Muslims to upload stories which allow them to connect to other communities, 
which allow them to say, this is what goes right in my life. And regrettably, this is what goes wrong in my life. And I would like to use this as an experience to connect, uh, usually with non-Muslims, to talk to you about what your thinking is on, on this type of experience, be it my workplace, be it how I feel at a bus stop, be it uh, mm. some of the films I enjoy, where I take my children and so on. But of course, part of Muslim stories and what we can't ignore at all is the positive contribution Muslims have made to this country. And that is the second of the two key planks, Salman, of Islamophobia Awareness Month. I mean, 2% of the British public know how many Muslims and the fact in truth that many Muslims fought in World War One for this country. That's 400,000, the number is 400,000 Muslim soldiers fought in World War One for this country. Now it's one thing fighting for a country you live in, your partner and children live in, your parents, where you make your livelihood and somewhere which if it was taken over, you would be, you would lose your home and be fundamentally in a different position. That's what the average English soldier would have done in World War One. It's quite another thing to do what Muslims did, which is fight for a country you have never stepped foot in, because a lot of these Muslims were from the Indo subcontinent at the time, right? Pre-partition. So to fight for a country you have uh, just out of loyalty to the crown, that you have never stepped foot in, which actually doesn't provide a living for you and your family, not where you and your family live, and not where you're gonna make your income. Yet you still put your life on the line for that country. So what a phenomenal sacrifice those 400,000 Muslim soldiers made. But of course, we can go further than that. If we have a look at our National Health Service, you know, one of the key achievements of UK PLC on our CV, there's something like 30,000 Muslim staff in the NHS. When a survey was done of 60,000 doctors in the NHS, 21% uh, stated they were Muslim. We're only 6.7% of the population. Mm. So that's three times our percentage of the population. We have Muslim doctors in the NHS. And it goes much further. Is it, is it true the, that the most common uh, doctor name oh. is Dr. Khan or something? Well, I don't I know, perhaps. <laughs> Well, perhaps. I haven't seen the data on that, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was. And, you know, on, on a more somber note, uh, something like 22, 23 of the first 37 doctors to die from COVID on the front line before there was a vaccine available were Muslim. Did we hear about that in the media? I doubt it very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very rarely. And of course, uh, uh, for, uh, for Zana Hussein, I believe her name was in 2009, her picture was projected on the big screen in Piccadilly as GP of the year, a hijabi wearing Muslim woman. And she's part of something like 44.3% of the NHS, which is now black and minority ethnic. The stat is, if you see somebody who's not white in a hospital, there, there's a greater chance that they are treating you in some way, shape or form than them actually being a victim, uh, sorry, than them actually being a patient in the NHS mm, itself. Mm, so mm. Muslims have done a lot, but it's not just the NHS. If we look at economically, Muslims contribute 31 billion to the economy in this country. And that's what part of positive contributions here is all about. We've created just in London alone over 70, 80,000 jobs. And this is from the Muslim Pound uh, report. So economically, we're contributing a massive amount. And if you now look at some of the landmarks, I mean, people think about the UK. Let me just mention to you some of the huge corporations in this country, 
which now are either Muslim owned or have had massive Muslim investment just to underscore the jobs that we are creating as a community. The Shard, 95% owned by the Qataris. Battersea Power Station, Malaysian government, 400 million pounds. Olympic Village, owned by Qataris. Yeah, Arsenal, and obviously Emirates, the direct connection there with the stadium. Manchester City, um, mm. uh, owned by uh, the Abu Dhabi Royal Family. Canary Wharf, consortium led by the Qataris, British Airways, Thames Water, Barclays Bank, Harrods, Camden Market, a good chunk of Sainsbury's, and I won't go on and on and on. But the point here is this, there's so much of this country we have invested in and Muslims own, thereby improving the economic situation of this country. It's, it's, it's not, it's not obviously not ideal, it's quite, um, quite a sad situation that we're having to almost prove our humanity here. But uh, I think it's important for people to recognize the context behind this, why this is the case, because Islamophobia, in, 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 among other things, is also a very ancient, it's an ancient discourse, right? And people, people have been brainwashed into this um, discourse, into um, believing certain things about Muslims as the quintessential other, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the foreign, illiberal, um, barbaric other against which you know some uh, one competing voice for Britishness and Europeanness and and whiteness in fact um, uh, defined itself right and this this requires some serious discourse to counter that and to unbrainwash people in that so this is the context in which this is very important it's not it's not that we have to you know um, uh, prove our humanness for any other reason other than you know the fact that muslims have been dehumanized for 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 centuries if not a, a millennium almost right so i think jonathan Lyons he has a very important book called islam through western eyes you know charting the same discourse from the crusades all the way up to the war on terror and some some common themes and if we look at if we look at um uh the 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 dehumanization of the palestinians for example as we're we're, we're seeing um, playing out the consequence of it playing out in our media discourse in our parliaments in 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 congresses and parliaments all over the world it's not the fact that there's lies about palestine uh, palestinians and, and about the uh, gaza for example and all this you know you've seen beheaded babies and you know kid uh, you know killing grannies and all this kind of stuff it's not the fact that there, there, there exist these propaganda points from uh, from uh, the israeli authorities it's the problem is the fact that they're so readily believed by by large chunks, large swathes of uh, of of the movers and shakers in in society, and that is, and that is a clear example of where, on a discourse level, there's a lot of work to be done because, you know, a belligerent in a in a in a in a conflict somewhere, they're going to make up stuff, they're going to dehumanize the other. You kind of understand it from their point of view, but the fact that these these propaganda points and lies and you know tropes and stereotypes are so readily believed. Is, is the real sign here that, you know, it's akin to, you know, ancient um, uh, anti-Semitic kind of uh, um, tropes and stereotypes and, you know, like blood libel and, you know, that the Jews are this, this evil species that are trying to, you know, uh, destroy everyone and so forth. Uh, obviously, it, 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 can, it comes from a, a, a Western European uh, kind of a hatred of, of Jews, for example. Um, but you can see a similar kind of uh, uh, um, subtext 
of people just ready to believe that oh, of course of course obviously the you know the the well, the people in Gaza what they want is just to wipe out all Jews of course mm. what they want is just destruction and that's where I see the 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 importance of Islam, things like Islamophobia Awareness Month you know when it, when oh, it, when it intersects with it's a counterforce it, it's a counterforce yeah I mean I mean in, in a nutshell and uh, for sure we can uh, certainly go into um, uh, the kind of institutionalization and the importance of, of Islamophobia Awareness Month in a minute as you're alluding to but just on your earlier point which is look there's at least two massive reasons why Muslims are seen as second-class citizens in many countries there are plenty more but there's at least two one is there's a concerted right-wing effort with very powerful right-wing lobby groups often financed from the United States by some wealthy families and you can add organizations like the Henry Jackson Society into that the Gatestone Institute and so many more you know the Islamophobia Network was a great report carried out by the Center for American Progress and others in the US and similar work's been done in the UK where you can clearly trace back to 30 40 50 large family trusts money which is being utilized to to regularly and effectively peddle hate against Muslims and the Muslim identity it is an ideological fight so let's be absolutely honest and clear there is a very well-funded lobby out there that's not a conspiracy theory by me documents and papers have been printed and reported and clearly evidence and not being sued because they are true clearly showing which families are whipping up hatred against Muslims and that's because their view is the West is a Judeo-Christian space there's no space for these Muslims they may have come here as immigrants to help us with our labor problems and make money but they should probably go back now is what a lot of these think tanks think they didn't expect us to really firmly lay down our roots here and to live here forever and so the face of society has changed away from being a Judeo-Christian West to it being pretty multicultural and a lot of these people are genuinely very frightened and for no logical reason when you consider immigrants are, are usually very good for economic empowerment and entrepreneurial innovation type ideas so for no good reason um, these people have got ideological issues with immigrants being there even though economically that's the right thing so they're all well-funded lobbies and I've mentioned some of them and mm. I could mention many many more the second of the two kind of at least two reasons is the fact that first-generation immigrants and to a degree second-generation ones are not particularly wealthy and when you're not particularly wealthy and you're just making your way out of the inner suburbs to the outer suburbs to the more expensive housing and you know you can't afford what other people do um, people do sometimes you know one of the worst things about a capitalist uh, society uh, prism is everyone is seen through the prism of wealth so you have social class 1a 1b then social class 2 and, and, and things along those sorts of lines just because you have lots of money doesn't make you a better person one of the most beautiful things about our religion is our saying that all of humanity is equal in front of God except by piety and piety is the great leveler not money there are some people who don't do much for their money because they inherit it there are others who work very hard and never make it but the fundamental reality here is something which can all which we can all do is be a better human being more generous more charitable better in our behavior more pious in our worship and that in Islam is what makes you a better person not your bank balance and capitalism introduces this really odd parameter to judge people by which is 
the car you drive, the house you live in, the area you're in, the golf club you're a member of, and ranks you based pretty much on financial wealth, hence top 100 lists and so on. And of course we know money doesn't always buy happiness and very often it can be soul destroying for people. So I agree with you and we can go into colonialization arguments here, the history of the Raj, we can go into the fall of uh, the Caliphate uh, in Turkey. There's so much we can go into and of course time is tight. But if we just look at it here and now in a UK contemporary kind of modernist context, mm -hmm. then the active attacks against us by right-wing think tanks heavily funded by some nasty neoconservative right-wing families coupled with the fact that Muslims are initially a first generation come second generation immigrant community, we're still making our way up the wealth ladder and the education ladder and so on. And the nature of capitalism is people view us through a prism of financial prosperity. And as a result of that, we're a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think is some of the relevance? Can you, can you, so we, we talked about Islamophobia Awareness Month, uh, the history behind it, the thinking behind it, some of the wins. Um, what is the the relevance would, that you would say for the importance of Islamophobia Awareness Month and things like that to tackle Islamophobia when it comes to linking to what's happening in Palestine and the Islamophobic, you know, framing uh, of, of of Muslims? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Look, and I guess there's a few points here yeah the first thing is what is islamophobia awareness month trying to do it's trying to institutionalize the way other communities have our cause into mainstream society and our stake we're trying to make people uh, aware so i wrote a paper for the muslim 500 publication uh, a few years ago and i had a section in it called obama versus stonewall and i concluded in it that the organization the ordinary organization always beats the flamboyant individual. And the example I gave was that if you look at some of Obama's great achievements at the time during his tenure, his eight-year tenure as U.S. president, the first black president, um, Obamacare, you know, the, the kind of fair, uh, free uh, health care system or a better health care system anyway for Americans uh, of a lower pay grade, the Iran nuclear deal he struck, uh, the relationship with North Korea and so much more. He, as an individual, worked very hard to get this through. But Donald Trump, within nine months to a year, had uh, signed executive order upon executive order and reversed so much of what Obama worked so hard yes. to achieve. Mm. Because mm. when you are a product mainly mm. of one individual, their dream and their vision, quite a bit of, what, uh, of which Obama was, then a lot of what you do can be reversed because you have not fully institutionalized in everyone's minds what you're about. Now compare that to Stonewall. Uh, and I often ask people, name me the CEO of Stonewall. They can't. Name me any staff member of Stonewall. They can't. Name me the former CEO. They can't. Name me a board member. They can't. Then I ask them, do you have diversity and inclusion initiatives in your workplace? They say yes. Do you have gender neutral toilets? Quite often, yes. Do you feel the presence of the LGBT lobby in your life? Yes. Do you hear about pride marches every year? Yes. And this is the point. When ordinary people pump their ideas, know-how, technology, mm. resource, ideology, heart and soul into an organization, then they don't individually rise as people per se, but they collectively raise their community. 
And I always say to people that if you want Islamophobia to be dramatically reduced, if you want it to be taken as seriously as LGBT hate crime and as anti-Semitism and racism, then you must institutionalize your knowledge, know-how, contacts, recess, and so on. Uh, that may mean taking a backseat personally uh, uh, and uh, instead building these organizations. One of the reasons why I set up MEND, Salman, rather than going uh, to become a member of parliament or, or any sort of uh, kind of media spokesperson role or something along those sorts of lines was primarily because I wanted to contribute to an institution that raises the community rather than rises. And the story of the LGBT community very quickly is phenomenal. In 1967, after the Stonewall riots in the US where the uh, gay uh, lesbian community uh, uh, and then it became known as LGBT terminology-wise afterwards, uh, really were abused very badly by police forces there and the authorities at that time. So they decided to get serious and form organizations like Outrage and Stonewall. You know, for nearly 30 years, Salman, they worked in schools. They worked whenever in the media they could, in shopping centers, in employers, and they had very few wins. But 33 years later, in the year 2000, and this is what patience and relentless work looks like, because Muslims are always after immediate results, and it doesn't work that way. And so uh, the LGBT lobby worked in all the spheres of society, in the year 2000, they finally reversed the ban on openly LGBT people working in the armed forces. By 2005, five years later, they got civil partnerships through because mm -hmm. they'd worked on so many MPs in Parliament and so on. By 2013, uh, I believe it was, they got same-sex marriages through. Now they've got diversity and inclusion indices in the workplace which are so powerful and absolutely ensure the LGBT identity is protected and the agenda is actually promoted. You've got to carry out work like that if you don't want another Gaza horror story to occur. You've got to carry out work like that if you want to stop Zainab Hussein being uh, almost murdered on the street. You've got to do things like that if you want the Daily Mail to stop printing Islamophobic headline beyond headline mm -hmm. beyond headline. And you've got to do work like that institutionally over decades if you want to stop Muslim kids cutting themselves with blades. Similarly, and very quickly, the pro-Israel lobby, something like, last time I checked, 80% of conservative MPs are part of conservative Friends of Israel, and a good many have been to Israel and seen the Israeli view on what's happening uh, in occupied Palestine. Mm. Now, you compare that to the requisite comparative Palestinian organization, and either they don't exist in the political parties, or they are a tiny fraction of the size and impact of their Israeli counterparts. So as a result of that, I think there are 10 different types of organizations and institutions, uh, Salman, that our community needs. Some of them I know I'm involved in, some of them I've supported, some of them I've had nothing to do with, and some just don't exist. Mm. But if I give you an idea of the areas in which they're in, they are these, and I'll list them. We need grassroots activism organizations which run campaigns at Gaza time, which run campaigns when you have concerns about uh, sex education teaching in schools, which run campaigns when there's a potential ban on halal meat. So proper grassroots activism organizations and MEND is an example of that. But we also need proper parliamentary advocacy teams. We need organizations in parliament which are analyzing any threats to the Muslim way of life. And on the back of that are meeting MPs, attending select committee hearings, carrying out the advocacy we require as a community to protect our halal meat, hijab, niqab, Muslim schools, and so on. 
we then need victim legal defense units. An example of that is the Islamophobia Response Unit. Uh, but it needs more resource. And that's a unit whereby if you're attacked on the street or you suffer hate crime, it will defend you for free. We then need organizations which work with schools to train teachers on Key Stage 1 to 5 on Islam and Islamophobia. So we can counteract some of the stuff that young minds read in the press, which is Islamophobic and so on. We then need wider engagement, a type of organization similar to Pride and Holocaust Memorial Day, which we have with Islamophobia Awareness Month, where we are proactively getting the positive message of ourselves as a community. We then need media monitoring organizations. So for example, the Center for Media Monitoring, which people like Miqdad do an excellent job of, which actively monitor the media and Rizwana and other of course as well which actively monitor the media and try to correct incorrect stories um, then you've got the whole employment discrimination space where Muslims are discriminated in the workplace so Stonewall lead that in terms of <laughs> diversity champions from a uh, LGBT perspective but now they, an organization I saw the other day called Muslim Friendly Employers has been set up to do something same in the workplace and then the last three are, are at election time the black community has Operation Black Vote so the Muslim community community has get out and vote and MCB do some stuff in that space as well think tanks wise are, are key I think policy exchange does an incredibly powerful job to protect the interests of its stakeholders in Parliament Muslims need something similar as well and then finally a whole nurturing system to give rise to a generation of Muslim journalists and politicians which some organizations like Avicenna and Aziz have got some engagement in so to, so to answer your question we need to institutionalized through at least these types of entities, uh, Muslims in UK PLC and beyond. When we start doing that, you will see we will be every bit as impactful as Stonewall is, as the Board of Deputies are, and others. But without that hard work over decades, mm. without that funding, without that strategy, without that blood, sweat, tears and toil, it's not going to happen. Yeah, there's no magic solution here. What's your... That's, that's fantastic, Masha. It's, it sounds like a strategy. You know, which <laughs> unfortunately is is quite rare, rare when we see, you know, a lot of our um, kind of public discourse and people, Muslims complaining. What, what's your message for the brothers and sisters out there that just say, you know what, what's the point? It's, it's uh, you know, uh, the system is rigged. It's, you know, maybe they've, they've seen one, two elections in their lifetime. They say, no, it won't work. What's your I, message I would tell them this. I would tell them this. There was a time in the 90s when the Jewish community used to complain about anti-Semitism in the Conservative Party, and rightly so, because the Conservative Party was actually very pro-Arab and to quite a degree pro-Palestine, because the Arabs used to buy big hotels in London and they were very well connected with a lot of the kind of wealthy Tory hierarchy. But Margaret Thatcher gave a speech, I believe, in the 90s, um, and the speech was uh, directed towards the Jewish community where she was advising them that look put some of your people in politics as well you guys are fantastic accountants and lawyers and so be it yeah you're a very very smart race but maybe put some people towards politics and see the benefit and people like Grant Shapps and these sorts of people were probably in some of those uh, speeches or at least some of their peers at the time would have been there 
So the, the Jewish community did invest heavily into ensuring um, politics was a serious career and a respectable career for young, uh, uh, up-and-coming Jewish people. Media was a respectable career as well. Today they find themselves in a situation where they are not just very well represented, but anti-Semitism is rightly taken very, very seriously by the political establishment. I only wish Islamophobia was taken as seriously. Um, and from a media perspective as well, uh, you know, it, it is in some way, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge sin to be anti-Semitic uh, as an editor, and rightly so, it should be. I just wish Islamophobia was taken uh, as seriously by some of these editors um, and so on. So my point here is you've got to be in it to win it. You've got to work at it. The Jewish community worked at this over the last 20, 30 years. That's how they turned it around. And earlier I gave you the example of Stonewall. You know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s and even the 90s, do you not think they said to themselves, the system's rigged, there's no difference we can make, and as a result of that, do nothing? No, they didn't say that. They carried on and they worked like mad and they turned it around, as their track record shows. Every major, even climate change is another example. For years, people couldn't care less about climate change. They really, really couldn't. But the climate change lobby kept going, provided the scientific data and proof. And now net zero is a big issue, right? Far bigger than it was 34 years ago. Uh, and if nothing else, go with the, prof, uh, the example of the Prophet Do you think on day one, when he faced the challenges he did with the Quraysh generally, do you think the difficulties he had with Banu Quraysa, Banu Nadir, Banu Qoyniqa, do you think at the time of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, all these difficulties he had day in, day out, led him to say, systems rigs man if we're never going to make a change or stuff along those sorts of lines no you know he had sabr he had patience he had sincerity and he had belief and he was the best of humanity alhamdulillah um, and he worked at it and finally turned it around and you know the thing we forget very often about michael hart's work on the prophets well michael hart's work on the, the 100 most influential people in history right it's probably the most famous uh, uh, book written in this sphere and he put the prophet as, as number one and when people ask why you know do you remember why the prophet was number one and they say yeah because he succeeded as a religious leader well actually michael hart gives two reasons because moses was a religious leader musa uh, jesus Islam, was a religious leader and many others actually would have claimed to have been religious leaders so that alone can't differentiate and distinguish the prophet وسلم, as number one but what michael hart said is that muhammad as, as he termed him was the only person not just to supremely succeed as a religious leader but also as a statesman as well to fundamentally bring change in society in his sphere uh, which ensured um, the oppressed were no longer oppressed he ensured a more even wealth distribution in society with the introduction of the zakah uh, system it ensured safety for women um, and protection and so on and it just brought about a better society. So if our Prophet ﷺ made it to number one in history on the back of that in, in no small part, then for us to have an attitude of we can't make a difference and just let Qiyamat come, it's just blatantly unacceptable. And not becoming of someone who calls himself part, part of the Ummah of Rasulullah ﷺ. It's, I mean, I suppose it's easier to just give up hope and, and just throw your hands up than do decades worth of long hard work. But sometimes there is there, there are um, um, kind of serious shubuhat that people might need to address or, or doubts or, or specious arguments that they may have. For example, they might see 
they so many Muslim or um, um, MPs of other kind of ethnic minorities, for example, and they perceive them as, in order to enter that game, they have to shed some of their values. They have to shed some of their, um, you know, their their Muslimness. What what do you say to that? Well, look. One of the reasons why this is a decision each individual makes, and you know we can uh, certainly we can relate the success. So I know one of the things you want to talk about is how successful I am has been, and we can come to that inshallah. Mm-hmm. But um, every individual has got to make a decision, and this is not an easy space as a discussion. So for me, there are certain red lines I can't ever cross. Um, so for example. I can never support the state of Israel in its dehumanization of Palestinians, for argument's sake. Um, I can never say alcohol is halal in Islam, no matter how people might want to misinterpret what happened historically on the Nusk and the Mansukh uh, and so on of historic verses. There's certain red lines I can't cross. Mm-hmm. And when you're in politics, and, and that may also uh, be the case uh, in other areas as well, when you get into politics, you are one part of a whole, part of an ideology. And even when you spend your life, which is admirable, uh, adding the good that you bring to the system and change the ideology such that it doesn't contradict your principles, um, or you accept that you're going to build organizations outside of the political establishment to try and achieve that. Because for sure, short term, you can't go into politics and expect everything to be on your terms. It's on the system's terms, and the system takes time to change. If you morally believe that the system is, say, uh, against climate change, and it doesn't take climate change seriously, and you want net zero as something that matters to you, it's going to take you years to get there. If you think that climate, climate change is a good uh, example to use, because it's far more economic incentive to deny it <laughs> than it is you know, oh, uh, Islamophobia. And there are people who still deny it, like Donald Trump is not a huge believer in, in the agenda that, say, Greenpeace would have about the extent to which climate is decaying. In terms of the economic cost of, of taking mm. it seriously, it's, it's probably huge. far beyond the economic cost of you know, having Muslims participate more fairly and equitably. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another example, of course, of this then would be the pro-Israel lobby. If you were in a political party where you felt the pro-Israel narrative is dominating the Palestinian narrative, and a healthy democracy always needs both. If one drowns out the other, it's never healthy for the long term. Everyone's going to be allowed a space and afforded, you know, Mm -hmm. to be able to air their grievances. Uh, Then short term, you're not going to turn that around. So either one, you accept that it's your life mission to be in the party and long term do it, or what you do is you sit outside of the party and you build pressure groups. Um, so I chose the latter because I never wanted to put myself in a position where I crossed a line which fundamentally contravened Islamic principles and, and where I hold dear. Now, of course, some others do. You know, we can see visible examples of Muslim politicians um, who have, um, so we can take Sadiq Khan as an example and his support for the LGBT movement. Let's just take that as an example here. So that's Sadiq's calculation. Um, and good luck to him. I think his calculation has been that he can benefit Londoners as a whole and Muslims too, but at the same time, he's supportive, whether he's overtly supportive of LGBT or he does it because it's just part of the job, only he knows and Allah knows. But, he, he, you know, he, he'll take that, he'll do that. 
because there's a much bigger picture in his view at play in terms of benefiting Londoners and benefiting the Muslim community. That's his decision. And, you know, I respect him for, for you know, he, he can make that decision and I respect his right to make that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, mine is more to do with organizations uh, and uh, building entities and so on, which then have their own stake, their own space and their own impact. But they'll take many decades to create. Yeah, yeah. Zakla um, talking about uh, the political sphere, what's what's been your reaction to you know the recent days of removal of Suella Breverman, the tussle in the Tory Party, and what what does that mean for the the political equation for Muslims in the UK going forward? In your view? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they say a week's a long time in politics. <laughs> God, oh God, God Almighty, uh, a day can be a long time in politics. But just before I answer that question, if you don't mind, I'm just going to touch on uh, one of your earlier points, which is where I am has got to. And, yeah. you know, this is a living example uh, as an answer to one of your questions. You know, when people say we can't change, there was a time when major city councils embraced pride but didn't embrace I am. There was a time when big politicians supported Holocaust Memorial Day but didn't support Islamophobia Awareness Month. There was a time uh, when organizations like the British Medical Association and others may have had stronger uh, anti-racism drives than they have necessarily Islamophobia drives. But on the back of the work, particularly in the last two years, you can now see Every major party, bar the English Conservatives, supports Islamophobia Awareness Month. Uh, you know, need every major political figure like Keir Starmer and Hamza Yusuf and from the Greens, Caroline Lucas and Ed Davey and all of these, again, bar the Conservative Prime Minister, support Islamophobia Awareness Month. Massive mm. councils across the country plaster Islamophobia Awareness Month, like Newham Council, Birmingham, Leeds, Westminster, Blackburn, all supportive. Companies like Vodafone, personally like Moeen Ali, organised Organizations like, uh, as I say, the CWU Union, the Quakers, the British Medical Association, um, uh, the Church of Scotland, the Holocaust Trust. We never saw this, is my point, Salman, two years ago. But the work put in by the community and the exhausting efforts by the Islamophobia Awareness Month team, Alhamdulillah, is mainstreaming in a short period of time in our lifetimes that change. So how can anyone say to me the system is rigged and we can't make a difference here? No one can tell me that. The odds are stacked against us in a number of spaces. That's right. The money is heavily against us and we have a lot of apathy as a community and sadly a lot of fear. But there's enough there to link into to positively make a difference. And I am is an example of that. You know, just, just similarly and very quickly, a few years ago, you could have said, we don't have a community legal defense unit. Where do I go? If I've been attacked on the street, the police are not taking it seriously, the CPS are not prosecuting, or my employees discriminating against me because of my hijab, or my supervisor won't give me the promotion because of my beard. There was nowhere to go. The IRU now exists, yeah, with seven, 60, 70 caseworkers nationally and lawyers, alhamdulillah, uh, and so on. And it's solved over, uh, it's been involved, I should say, in over 1,300 cases, hundreds of which have been solved. And the classic example of that has been Muslim kids waving Palestine flags in schools were reprimanded in all kinds of ways, uh, you know, partly due to the Department of Education's letter, which was so heavily pro-Israel. Um, uh, Muslim kids were reprimanded in so many different ways. Where did they go? 150 of them contacted us within two working days. We solved all of their issues. We made sure they weren't suspended or those were, who were suspended, their suspensions were lifted, that they weren't expelled and that safe spaces were created in schools for children to voice their concerns. Again, 
four or five years ago, you'd have said, wouldn't it be great to have something like that? We have it. Uh, today's the point. You know, uh, some people sleep at night and dream their dreams. Other people stay awake and make them a reality. And uh, w when I left business, for me, that's what this was about. It wasn't about every media appearance. It wasn't about being totally controversial and just talking about prevent the whole time. It was working with our community to build institutions for change peacefully and democratically. So we guarantee our stake in this country, inshallah, just like other communities have. So sorry, I just had to get that off my chest, right? <laughs> before before okay. I got, went, no, no, no problem. I was going to ask that. Because that inspiration's like got to be there. Yeah. <laughs> that inspiration's got to be there for our communities. Yeah. So right. now, um, so now you were asking about uh, this. So uh, I mean, we, we, we're still yet to come to some of the wins that uh, Muslim organizations and I am perhaps may have had. Mm -hmm. But um, let's first look at the Suella thing. Look. Let's let's remind ourselves of who this woman Suella Braverman is. Um, Suella Braverman really has been very right wing. Some may describe her as uh, extreme in some of her views as well, dependent upon which definition of extremism you wish to use. But by the time somebody turns around and says things like uh, Pakistani sex grooming gang, uh, the kind of accusations she made against Pakistani men and their prevalence in sex grooming gangs, when the Home Office's own data showed something like 80 odd percent of sex grooming gangs were not Pakistani men and were generally speaking white. Mm -hmm. When you turn around in all insanity, in my view, and turn around and say things like people sleeping rough on the streets, this is a lifestyle choice. Is that a wind up? This is a lifestyle choice. And, you know, her list goes on, on the, the, the kind of extraordinary, you know, bordering on insane type stuff. She said her treatment of asylum seekers, and we know just mm -hmm. now her Rwanda plan. She's obviously not Home Secretary now, but we know today the Supreme Court has rightly ruled against her Rwanda plan. This woman's track record was blatantly balmy. And, you, and for me, people like me would question her sanity. You know, mm -hmm. can you really be sane when you say this and make these sorts of statements? Or are you sane, but you truly are ideologically so anti-Muslim, so anti-immigrant, so anti-homeless, and so anti-so many of the vulnerable groups in society that it leads you to be as cruel as you are. It's no joke she earned the nickname Cruella. And boy, oh boy, did she earn, uh, she, did she work hard to, to, to earn that name Cruella. Um, anyway, you know the, so uh, where do I think this is all at? I was thinking of making a sign at the demo the other day saying uh, being a is a lifestyle choice well, well well you know there were some controversial uh, certainly in the view of the Met Police by the looks of things and others uh, banners there and now a whole debate has begun uh, has started on what is protected by freedom of speech and what isn't. We all saw the mm. coconut uh, image as well. Um, anyway, what do I make of what's going on at the moment? What's going on at the moment is this. Sometimes in the Conservative Party, it becomes a race to the bottom. Who can be most Islamophobic? Who can be most anti-immigrant? Because the Conservative Party in Cameron's years was definitely forced to the left a bit more, like, as in centre-left. I don't mean left-left. No, I don't mean Jeremy Corbyn left. I mean centre-left. Um, in fact, when um, David Cameron turned around and said, 
I don't support homosexuality in spite of being a Tory. I support it because I'm a Tory. That was a defining moment for the LGBT movement with the Tory party. And so a lot of the people who were on the right right of the Tory party were left behind, the European Research Group and the bunch of real right-wingers and so on. So if you look at the space Suella comes from, it's pretty much from that genre and that space of individuals. And sometimes you have Kim Bednog, Suella, Priti Patel, and it's a competition between who can be uh, a right. Sometimes you get the concept of whiter than white. In this case, it's brighter than right. Um, and it's worrying and troubling for those of us who want to live in a democracy, which we want as pretty much a centrist democracy, where everyone is accepted for who they are. So I think where the Conservative Party is at the moment, when you consider Boris Johnson walking with an 80 majority in a Brexit election. And now, depending upon which analysis you follow, Labour could be headed for a landslide victory or, or could be headed for some sort of victory. How on earth has that Tory party and Rishi and his predecessor Liz, and you can go on and Boris then, how have they managed the country so badly during that time? And obviously I appreciate you had COVID and a whole host of other stuff in, that the electorate has lost so much confidence in these people that they're going to be losing 80 seats and possibly a load more into deficit territory accordingly. I think the party's in crisis and the Conservative Party has a habit of imploding. It just does. And attacking its own. It's got a good habit of winning elections as well somehow, but it certainly has a habit of a lot of internal conflict. I think when you're a party which started off pretty right-wing and you were dragged by Cameron and others to the centre-left, and now part of you is trying to drag it to the right, and others want to even more right-wing. If you read Suella Braverman's resignation letter, she accuses the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, whom presumably she would have worked with closely, certainly before she became Home Secretary, of reneging on so many promises. And essentially, if you read that letter carefully, she's basically saying to him, you are not right-wing enough or you are not honouring the promises of right-wing values that you said you would. So it's a race to the bottom of the cesspit, in my view. Where will this all end is the real question. Well, I suspect the Tories will lose the next election and they will lose it somewhere between a contained loss to a pretty heavy loss. Rishi Sunak then will then have to go and a battle for the soul of the party will begin. And where I suspect it will end is really on the right. I think it'll go back to where it started before Cameron dragged it to where it has been. And that will probably be a, a pretty, pretty nasty right wing party from, uh, from where we're standing. So What's it's a, a crazy what, time. What does that mean for the political equation for Muslims? Then? So, you know, just today, um, I have finished a day-long meeting uh, with some people, and we've been discussing uh, what should the Muslims do as far as their vote is now concerned, because we know the Conservatives have got structural Islamophobia problems, we know that. Um, but Keir Starmer's really shameful decision uh, to um, not back fully, in fact, it's on today, isn't it, the vote in Parliament on the ceasefire, how topical you should ask me this mm. question. So Keir Starmer's shameful decision not to back an immediate outright ceasefire, not just humanitarian pauses, immediate outright ceasefire. Um, uh, you know, how on earth can you save human life by allowing more attacks by Israel? You save human life by having a ceasefire, especially for women and children, as, as is often commented on in the media. 
and so that itself really has riled up lots of Muslims. I know what Keir is thinking, which is he's going to walk in such with such a majority, some white elephant in the room, that the Muslim vote's not going to matter. But a week's a long time in politics, as we say, let alone a year. Within a year, so much could have changed in the landscape, right, with other political parties that Keir may well need the Muslim vote. He's hemorrhaging it at speed. Today, he's going to almost certainly be sacking shadow ministers who are Muslim because they have voted with the SNP's amendment and the ceasefire. And so a lot of Muslims are asking now, is Labour a palatable voting option for us? Should we now start looking at the Green Party, at independence, at the Lib Dems? Should we look at a new centre-left party? All options are on the table, nothing's off the table. I can certainly tell you from a men viewpoint what's happening, which is a heck of a lot of research, analysis, marginal seat strategy is going on and then a large national rollout campaign to ensure political parties which are either institutionally Islamophobic, mm -hmm. uh, for example the Tories, or leaders who have blatantly disregarded the rights of the Palestinians like Keir Starmer don't benefit from the Muslim vote. Okay. So you're, you're, you're cooking up a plan for the next election as we, as we speak? Oh, we, we are well and truly cooking. <laughs> you can rest assured we are well and truly cooking. We're going uh, to have you back on, uh, inshallah, to discuss that uh, in due course, inshallah. Uh, but before we end, can you just um, remind us of some of the wins? You said you were going to talk about some of the wins of, or, or, or how big uh, I, I am is now? So look, um, I am is big now, as I articulated earlier on, but it's going to get much, much bigger, inshallah. Mm -hmm. uh, and my credit to the team that runs I am and how well they have done, alhamdulillah. And from a men's perspective, we're certainly proud to have been one of the founders of what is now Islamophobia Awareness Month. But, you know, if you work at it, then you can get results. You've just got to put resource behind it, have the belief and sincerity. As long as you apply yourself professionally, you're sincere and you believe in the long term, of course you can have results. There's the old adage that you are nothing until you're everything. <laughs> and, in that re and, and that uh, applies really nicely to say say to the climate change uh, activists, the pro-Israel pressure groups, uh, the some of the right-wing organizations who have a huge footprint in politics, um, in that the LGBT uh, lobby groups as well, they really have established their agenda in Western countries. And so when I say you're nothing until you're everything, what I mean is it's a long journey to get to that tipping point. But the minute you have the boulder at the top of the mountain and you roll it down, you've done it. It'll, it'll work, it'll move itself then because it's on a, on a deep decline as opposed to an incline. So what I say are what I would consider minor victories. They're not major victories. Major victory will occur when we have the infrastructure and the institution to proactively protect Islam mm. and Muslims in the Western world. And we are some years off that. Yeah, but we have to work towards it like the others did. Um, so, for example, when the Sun printed their uh, one in five British Muslims support jihadi sto story, mm. which was blatantly untrue, and I can bet they knew it was untrue. And even the polling company had reservations, which... Um, whereby the uh, uh, Sun, uh, uh, many believed, had misrepresented their own poll. Um, so we challenged that. We went through the press regulator, and a few months later, the Sun had to print a full correction, uh, which effectively said they misrepresented their own poll. Now, to take Rupert Murdoch on and to win is not easy, or at least his empire, but we did it because we knew the press legislation, mm -hmm. uh, and we knew the angles to take as men as an organization to turn that around. In a similar 
similar fashion until a few years ago, the police recorded race-based hate crime in a particular fashion uh, in terms of their internal uh, reporting systems and requirements and so on. So uh, Jews and Sikhs and black people, uh, hate crimes against them because they are defined by race under UK law, were recorded differently and one might argue more diligently than hate crimes against Muslims. Mm. So the Conservative Party came to the MEND event at the conference in Birmingham. Lyndon Cosby, Crosby was present. And he made a commitment at that time, which is if we have an outright majority in the election, we will ensure changing the law or changing practice that attacks against religious minorities like Muslims are recorded the same way by police as racial minorities. Mm -hmm. And I'm pleased to say today that is exactly what happens nationally. Mm -hmm. Alhamdulillah. Another example is Zainab Hussein. You know, and this is a lady um, who uh, needed uh, support when she was run over twice mm -hmm. by a right-wing lunatic in Leicester, and uh, it was an attempted death, uh, attempted murder uh, situation. In the first instance, the CPA, uh, the police weren't treating it as Islamophobic, and the media weren't getting involved either. The Islamophobia Response Unit got involved, the good people over there, and they got lots of media attention, and they got the CPS involved quickly, they got the police involved quickly, they got the local mosque involved. The chap, I think his name might be Paul Moore, um, is now locked up for 20, 25 years without parole. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another example closer to home, my own children in uh, our school in uh, uh, back home, I, mean, I won't mention the name of the school, they were denied prayer facilities and they were denied wudu facilities. And initially the feedback my ki uh, even my wife got from some of the teachers at the school was that if you want your kids to pray, you should have gone to an, a Muslim school, an Islamic school. Now, wow. this is one of the most prestigious kind of private schools in the whole area. So, uh, MEND got involved. We worked with the governors. We provide them, provided them with the info mm -hmm. in terms of the um, uh, the Easy Read Guide that Mendes produced on press spaces. Uh, we got local MPs involved. We got media involved and so on. And now, hey, presto, they have a specific press space and they have purpose-built wudu-made wudu facilities as well. That's, That's a change. Amazing. And, you know, finally, things like the cremation bill was a really important <coughs> time for Muslims because during COVID, we did not know whether them, how many people were going to die and whether Muslim bodies were going to be piled up outside or, or inside cemeteries next to crematoriums and forcefully cremated for health and safety reasons. And, you know, thanks to the effort of people like Nashar and a hard work in parliament, powered by Muslims on the ground through action alerts by MEND, I think we had 17,000 people wow. go through to our alert in 24 hours or something like that. Okay. The government accommodated the Muslim view at a very, very sensitive and difficult time. You can make these changes, but they are minor wins mm -hmm. in my view. The big wins come when you create institutions which are at the table with the decision makers, making the rules in the first place and proactively building the fireproof house rather than reactively putting out the fire. As they say, and I guess we can end on this, tomorrow is for those who see it coming today. If we want a better tomorrow, we better start planning today. Is that right? Excellent uh, insights. Just going to end with a quick quick fire round. Just yeah, quick sure. questions. Go on. Give me the first answer that comes into your head. Okay, go on. Really? Who's my favourite football team? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are they as easy as that? I wouldn't mind those. Yeah. Name a recent book or audio book that you would recommend. A recent book or audio book. Um, 
I read uh, a few things I read recently. One was Who Runs Britain? It's a bit of an old mm. book by Rob Peston, but I'd, I'd, I'd definitely recommend that. And then I read a really good book on public speaking, and I think it was Stand Like Lincoln and Speak Like Churchill, something like that. And it was all around uh, public speaking. I definitely recommend both of those two. And, and as, a, as, a, as a podcast, if I can just add this in, there's one I listen to weekly, and, and I think it's the best. It doesn't get everything right, but I think it's the best podcast to be listening to, and it's The Economist podcast, mm. which I think is excellent. Yeah. It's the best four or five pounds you'll spend a week. Okay. Which gadget, other than your phone, would you do you value the most? Which gadget, other than my phone? The phone's the obvious one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> do I value the most? And I think it's got to be my laptop, bro. It's a boring answer for you there, yeah. but I live my life on my laptop. Um, so it would have to almost certainly be my laptop. I'm not a particularly techie, gadgety type person, so I don't have all of the, the kind of latest tech around me and mm. things along those sorts of lines. But, uh, you know, I live and breathe through my laptop, okay. <laughs> basically, connect to the rest of the world. Maybe my PA's phone number would be the other <laughs> one that bails me out from all the trouble I might be in. Excellent. Finally, which website or app would you recommend or encourage others to visit or download? The um, a combination of the Ummah Welfare Trust Dua and Adkar app, which I think is excellent mm -hmm. for daily Adkar. And then I've just got an app. If you give me a second, I'll tell you. That I don't even know the name of it, but I use it every day. It's called, uh, uh, just, it's called dua. My Dua. My Dua. Ummah Welfare Trust one. My door. Yeah. Is this one here? Namloa Uber or Avanti Trains or Google Maps. <laughs> but you can see my door here. Yeah, it's that one. So my door and it's your daily car. I think that's banging up. Okay. Mashallah. But finish the sentence. If our audience would remember one thing from this podcast, it would be strive more to the person who raises the community than the one who individually rises. For the competition in the former is much less than the latter. And Allah will probably judge you better. Allah Akbar. Wow. That was deeper than I was anticipating. <laughs> <laughs> what did you expect, bro? <laughs> mashallah. You answered in some cryptic, roomy, uh, mashallah, okay, poem or something. Okay, fair enough. Zakhla <laughs> bro. Uh, no Sufyan Ismail, founder of MEND, Mars Vigilante, crime fighter by night. Batman. Pull of strings. <laughs> Batman. Batman, Superman, all of the things not in one. <laughs> 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 Remember, Jesus, Salam man. Salam Salam for the opportunity.